for joining us on the internet. I'm kind of thrilled. We've got uh, our class leadership is here present today. So normally I'm speaking to some family folks, but generally just to empty space and the internet space. But today I've got some people in here and that thrills me. Thank you guys for being here. I'm also thrilled because of what we get to talk about. We're getting to learn about some things that are really incredible. I love the sense of history. I love the fact that God doesn't only speak into our lives, but he's been speaking into lives, plural, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And what we explore as our faith Now, I look over here, I see my nephew, Davis. I see Daniel, who's been one of our favorite people forever, it seems. I see my daughter, Rebecca. I think Daniel came to sit next to Rebecca, not Davis, but that's okay. Um, uh, I, I, I look at them and I think the faith is theirs. But it's not just theirs, it's their parents, their grandparents. Davis sitting next to my, my mom, his grandmother. Her parents, their parents, their parents. It goes all the way back to the beginning of humanity because God made us to be in a relationship with him. And so it's hardwired into us a desire for relationship, a desire for being right and, 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 and having you know, so many people, before they experience a true fellowship with God, have this longing in their life for something more. This innate sense that says, I was made for more than this. And that cry of the human heart is a cry that God's been addressing since he made us. But within the pages of scripture, we get to see God unfolding for us an understanding of how he's going to make things right and how he is able to relate to us and to walk with us and to minister to us and to love on us. And that's what we're exploring in here. As we've been going through the story on the road to Emmaus. Because those two disciples of Jesus, Cleopas and his brother, our friend, were walking this road for several hours. But when Jesus started talking to them, their thought of Jesus was, here was a fella, Yeshua, Joshua is our English word for the name of Jesus. Here is Joshua who did these great things, but he got killed. There are rumors that his body's been resurrected, whatever that might mean. But they're befuddled. And they don't really understand that what was happening was not just an event on Easter weekend. But it was a culmination of a long-standing plan and revelation by God. That God had been revealing and, and, and tempting, tempting the people with a taste of what was to come. I got to tell you, I miss going to movies. 
oh, I know, we can watch them on Netflix or Amazon Prime and that kind of stuff, but I miss going to movies. And it's not simply the food, though that could be part of it. I miss going to movies because I love the previews. You can watch eight previews and I can figure that's eight movies I don't have to see. I've seen the preview. I know what's going on. Well, God had given the preview. But occasionally the preview is of a movie that's going to be so profound and so good and so meaningful that even just watching the preview makes me want to say, well, I'm going to that movie. I'm sure many of you experienced that when you realized that the final in the Rambo series was coming out. It's like, well, I've got to go see Rambo. The last movie. It's the last of the series. You know, there are some movies, well, God gave us a preview of what he was going to do that was so profound and so meaningful that it made, should have made, everybody long for the real deal. And that's some of what we're talking about this morning. So I want to do, over the next 40 minutes, three things. The first thing I want to do is I want to understand the pieces that are involved in the preview that God gave. And after we understand the pieces, I want to review a couple of key concepts from last week. And then finally, I want to spend a good bit of time on the lessons that we need to learn from the Ark of the Covenant and and what the Bible has to say about it. So let's do those things. First, let's understand the pieces. Now, I've got three pieces here in front of you. You might be saying, I only see two. No, there are three. The first is this chest or box, Aaron in Hebrew. Aaron means a chest, means a box. It could be a coffin. When uh, the Israelites took Joseph's bones out of Egypt, they took them out in an Aaron, in a box, a chest. Now, this chest was made in a very specific way. Because it was made to hold something on the inside. The chest was made to hold the Ten Commandments. Also a jar of manna and uh, Aaron's rod. But this was made out of wood and it was covered in gold. Now the Egyptians knew how to cover in gold. That was not a brand new idea. For the Israelites. They're coming out of Egypt. The Egyptians even had a gold foil that could have been used. And so scholars differ over whether or not a gold foil was used. Or or whether or not it was a a more thick coating. And and I don't know. Uh, Nobody does. But it's covered in gold that we know. So it's made out of acacia wood, which is a kind of willow. It's covered in gold, and God gave them the dimensions. The one I've got here is two-thirds the size of what it would have been. So it would have been about a little over a foot longer and about nine inches taller. But this is it. 
Now, Aaron is the Hebrew word for chest. So this is the Aaron. This is the ark in and of itself. Uh, it, by the way, today, even if you go to a Jewish synagogue, they have the Aaron Kodesh, which is the, the uh, Kodesh is holy. Um, uh, uh, the Aaron the Kodesh is the holy chest where they keep their Torah scrolls. So that's this. But the chest, the ark, holds within it the covenant, which is represented by the Ten Commandments. They were two tablets. These are heavy. I only carried one. This is a half a cabinet, a half a covenant. But, but the, 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 the Hebrew word for covenant means a, a, an arrangement, an agreement, means a lot of different things. And, and berit is the word for covenant, but, but the, 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 the tablets itself is the edut. It's, it's the testimony. So it gets called both in the Hebrew Old Testament. But the covenant, the testimony, the Ten Commandments, they went in here. And that's what makes this the ark of the covenant. This is the box that has the Ten Commandments inside it. It represents the law that we live under. So we are in the box under the law. Now there's a problem. If God looks into this box and sees us under the law, that's not a good thing. I'll talk about that more in a minute. But first got to tell you there's a third piece. And it's separate from these two. Don't think that this is part of the Ark of the Covenant. It goes on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But this is a separate piece of furniture. It has separate instructions. This was to be made of pure gold. Not gold-covered wood. These cherubim are to be hammered out of pure gold. Now, having said that, if you read the Hebrew carefully, it looks like they've been hollow on the inside. Don't think this was just one solid chunk of gold. But these are hammered out of gold. These aren't gold-plated. This is not gold-plated. But this is a third piece. This is called, in most of our Bible translations, the mercy seat. If you read the Hebrew, it's a kaporet, which means an atoning cover. It can also mean a propitiation. So the mercy seat is a third part of what Moses was instructed to do. So you have the Ark of the Covenant, you have the mercy seat on top, and then you have the covenant itself inside. Now, if we understand those three separate pieces for what they are, it helps us to process what the Bible explains 
in terms of the ark, but also in terms of Jesus. So, those are the pieces we need to understand. Second thing I want to do is review some key concepts that we talked about from last week, but I want to put them into bite-sized nuggets because I want them fresh in our mind when we add some more concepts. First concept, everyone who's living simply under the law has an insurmountable problem. If you are living or I am living under the law and we don't have anything to cover us up, we got a problem. If you were watching the church service with us this morning beforehand, Pastor Stephen talked about how if we measure what we do by what other people do, we might feel pretty good about ourselves. I'm looking around for an example. I can't find an example because all of y'all do better than I do. But I can think of examples of people where if I looked at them, I'd say, you know, I haven't arrived and all, but I'm doing all right. But that should never be our standard. God did not put into the Ark of the Covenant, it's not the Ark of other people. This is not where, hey, how are you doing compared to everyone else? This is a question of how are you doing in terms of the law? This is the standard. And the law is an expression of the character of God and how God would expect us to live perfectly. Now, you might be saying, but wait a minute, we don't follow that Old Testament law. That's another class, another time. We still are under a covenant relationship where God has written his law onto our hearts. And there are a number of things in the Old Testament law we still do follow. Now, these Ten Commandments, one of them is, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, that doesn't mean, don't say, GD. That doesn't mean don't say God haphazardly. It includes that concept. But that's a hangnail on the hand for what that commandment means. That commandment, Shem, the Hebrew word for name, means who you are, your character what you've done, your resume. So when you're told, and I'm told, not to take the resume, the character, the actions of God in vain, do we realize that it means don't take them lightly? Do we realize that every time we worry, we violated that Ten Commandments? Every time we worry and let anxiety or fear rule our life, we just transgressed like numero uno. We have taken the character and the name and the the, the resume and the power and the love and the concern, the essence of God, in vain. 
So if we start comparing our lives to the law, we're all in trouble. We have an insurmountable problem. Because God said a violation of the law leads to condemnation and curse. It leads to death. You say, well, why is God so finicky? The law is not arbitrary. The law is an expression of the character of God. This isn't God just saying, sitting back at, you know, David Letterman used to have an expression, more fun than humans should be allowed. This is not, oh, God's some old man in a rickety chair telling you what to do and what not to do. God's laying out for you and I the principles by which we live holy in his sight, by which we do right. Pastor Stephen in his sermon this morning said you can never go wrong if you do right. This is what we should be doing in our lives. This is what's blessed. But the obverse of that is, failing to do this is evil. By definition. It's a coronavirus that needs to be destroyed. Because it wreaks havoc on us. We're not made for it. And it it may wreak havoc in varying degrees on various people. But this is a virus. When you don't live by this, God says you're going to die. Because God's not going to let evil exist in humanity for eternity. we, We can't walk in fellowship with God as evil people. We can't. That's why he warned Adam and Eve. He said, the day you sin is the day you die. We've entered into an era of death. And that's what this is. Without an atoning cover, God sees us and the law, and we're toast. That's where we are. But we've got this mercy seat, this atoning cover. And the mercy seat atones for sin. What does that mean? Atone is the Hebrew word for ransom. It pays the price. And atonement kind of works in two different directions. Let me see if I can draw this out. Atonement works in... Hold on. The law has cast a shadow upon my atonement. There. Now it looks like we've got tons of shadows. So let's see how this works. Um, The atonement works in two different directions. First of all, here's the sin. Here's you and me. Okay? And here's God. Now... Atonement works in a couple of different ways. First of all, there is a punishment for sin, but there's also the price, the human price. And this is a fancy, fancy theological word you get to learn in seminary. Expiation. 
It's dealing with the human price of sin. But there's another word, and that is satisfying the wrath of God. And that's a word, another word you'd learn in seminary, called propitiation. Propitiation. And the mercy seat is one which is going to have upon it the blood of a sacrifice to make people right with God because of the forgiveness of their sins. Now, that's what this mercy seat does. That's what this is. So the Bible teaches us that Jesus is the true mercy seat. This mercy seat that the Israelites were told to build was a model of the reality. This was the movie preview of Jesus. God sits enthroned, he explains in scripture, above the mercy seat. So God is here. In fact, this cherubim layout is a representation of the throne where God sits, or at least in First Chronicles, it's also called the footstool, so that God sits on high and rests his feet here. But this is where God would meet with the people. But before God met with the people here, this had to be initiated. And that initiation was renewed once a year. Because the initiation was with the blood of a bull and a goat. But the blood of a bull and a goat doesn't really atone or ransom or pay the price for our sin. It's part of that preview. And so the preview's got to be watched again every year. As an indication that it's only a preview. It's only temporary. But Jesus became the true mercy seat. He became the covering for our sin that both covers it for us and satisfies God. And this is what Jesus was. This is the righteousness that is Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans when Paul says everyone is sinned. Everyone. We've all violated this law. Everyone is sin, and everyone's fallen short of God's amazing, pure, unadulterated glory. But we're justified, legal word, declared not guilty by His grace... As a gift, grace, charis, means a gift that you didn't deserve. So Paul's being doubly emphatic, adding doron, another Greek word for gift. He's saying, we are declared not guilty by the gift of God that's been given to us. Where? Through the redemption. Redemption means the price paid, the purchase, the ransom. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation, that's your big word, by his blood to be received by faith. Now, every year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would first make an atonement for his own sin, seven times, sprinkling. This is in the Holy of Holies. He only gets to go in once a year, and he's got to do it just right. He goes in, sprinkles seven times the blood of the bull for his own sin. Then goes out and gets the blood of the goat for the sins of the people. Goes back in seven times. And, and the Jewish rabbis in their writings talk about how he would always call it out loud. One, two, three. So that the people outside would A, know he's still alive and didn't get zapped. And B, uh, so he wouldn't lose track. And he'd do it right. But the priest would come and do it. Paul says that the real propitiation is one where God put forward the blood. And it's not the blood of a bull, and it's not the blood of a goat, it's the blood of Jesus. And that word propitiation is a special word in the Greek. It's hilasterion. It is the Greek word used in the Greek Old Testament for the mercy seat. What Paul is saying is God put forward Christ Jesus as the mercy seat by his blood to be received by faith. John uses a different variety of that same word, the the root word behind um, uh, this and, and, and John says my little children I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the father Jesus Christ the righteous he is the mercy seat for our sin he's the covering he's the atonement He's the propitiation. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the mercy seat for our sins. 1 John 4.10. So those are the key concepts that I wanted to make sure we're all flush on as we look at our final piece for today. What are the lessons we can learn from this? I've picked out five. Don't worry, they go pretty quick. First of all, God meets everyone at the mercy seat. This, I'd I'd love to tell you this is the world where you can find God anywhere. You can find God manifested in many different places. You can find certain truths of God in most any religion. But if you want to meet God in relationship with God, there's only one place to meet him. There's only one place, and that's Jesus. Through the blood of Jesus, God meets everyone at the mercy seat. In Exodus 25, 22... God explained this to Moses. God told Moses in Exodus 5, I will meet you at the mercy seat, 25, 22. That's where I'll meet with you. If you look at Numbers 7, 89, 
Moses. Let's see. Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord. He heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of testimony. From between the two cherubim. That's where, that's where Moses heard from God. And Moses was the intermediary for the people. So through Moses, the people meet with God and hear from God. Not from some piece of toast that looks like it's toasted with the picture of somebody. You meet with God at the mercy seat. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Brothers, I don't consider that I've, uh, I've arrived. <laughs> I don't consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. And I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. Clasis is the word for a call. Clasis is, uh, a lot of scholars question what Paul means by that, but, but uh, I tend to agree with F.F. F. Bruce. Clasis is, um, it a game? Uh, the, and and if the, just imagine the emperor of Rome, Caesar, presiding at a game. He could call the victor forth upon to the platform to receive his reward. The, the clasis is, it's an unusual Greek word for Paul to be using here, but it's the call out from God on our life. And Paul says, I strain forward. I press on toward the goal for the prize. Not the prize of the emperor calling me, but the prize of the upward call of God. But where do you hear the call of God? From the mercy seat. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We hear God's call to us from above the sacrifice of Christ. That's the meeting place. Everyone meets God there. If you've not met God through Jesus at the meeting place of Jesus, I invite you to do it. It's not hard. You don't have to RSVP. You don't have to wear a mask. In fact, you can take off every mask you have because God knows you better than you know yourself. But God says, you meet me there, and it's not a question of what you've done or haven't done and how good you are or how good you're not. With everything that condemns you under the law, I'll meet you atop the mercy seat where the blood of Christ is. And that's full forgiveness. That's the full not guilty. And not because God just said, hey, I'm not going to mess with sin today. This is no sin Sunday. But it's, the sin is serious. The sin is the virus. It's got to be put to death. But God's going to take that virus on and put it to death himself. 
So the price has been paid for all of our sin. The blood has been sprinkled. And it doesn't have to get done all the time, once a year. It's permanent. God put this blood on there, and it's the blood of Jesus. And so you, you, you embrace, you meet God at the mercy seat simply by saying, God, I meet you at the cross of Jesus. I am a sinner in need of the mercy and the blood of Christ. And I trust you to give me that. And God promises you, he will meet you at the mercy seat. That's it. You, 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 you turn from your life, you put your hands in God and you meet him there. All right, next point. We should follow God through Jesus in our life. You know, if, if you read the Old Testament about numbers, I mean about the ark, I love this passage out of Numbers 10. Numbers 10, verse 33. It says the following. I'm going to just lift that just a smidgen. Hold on. This is the Mr. Monk in me. Sorry. I know it probably doesn't matter, but I can't handle it. I start breaking out in a rash. So they will set out from the Mount of the Lord. Three, so they set out from the Mount of the Lord. Three days journey. And the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, chest of the Covenant, went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. The ark just went before them. They followed where God led. They wanted to meet with God, so where God went, they went. When they go into the promised land, Joshua chapter 3. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the priest, set out from your place and follow it. That's what you do. You follow God. If God's meeting you here, you follow God here. To the believer... Life is not a random set of happenstances. We don't have to tell each other, good luck. Life is one where we're following not not just a book. It's not just, gee, I'm going to follow the Bible. We're following the Lord who gave us the Bible. The Bible is a revelation of him. He's the one we follow. He's the reason we study the Bible. To hear his word. Because we want to follow him who gave his word. But we meet him in Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, If anybody comes after me, if anybody wants to come after me, let him or her deny himself take up his cross or her cross and follow me we should follow god in our life next all things are possible if we're in the presence of god 
the Joshua story that I started reading to you, where Joshua said that the priests are going to go out and they're going to take the ark with them and they're going to head out, continues to talk about what happened. So look at verse 14. Can we get it up there, Brent? Thank you. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan River, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the brink of the river, it was overflowing at the time, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the river. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This is a miracle. But it shows you powerfully a preview image of the truth that we can accomplish any task God gives us if we rely upon God meeting us for that task. Paul says very much the same thing in Philippians. In Philippians 4.13, a verse many people have memorized. It it actually starts in verse 10. Let's just get a running start on this. Paul's writing, understand Paul's writing to friends. He's writing to a church he started. and, And these are his friends and they're wonderful, loving people. And they've got some issues. They've got some gossiping and things like that going on, which isn't necessarily a good thing. But they're they're just really good people. And Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. By the way, I got an email yesterday. I got an email, or maybe it was the day before, and I looked at it yesterday. I looked at an email yesterday from a kind person that I've never met before who said that they'd stumbled upon our biblical literacy website and started listening to the classes. And they have finished 100 of them. They have about 600 to go. But the person said it took me 100 classes before I realized I should pray for you. I was touched. I was moved. I, I thrive and live and survive on the prayers of my family and friends. And, and, and the idea that's, that people pray, that, that this person that I don't even know is praying for us, praying for me, praying for this ministry, is just, I understand what Paul says when he, he says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord greatly that the Philippians had revived their concern for him. He says, you were indeed concerned for me before, but you didn't have an opportunity. Now, Paul probably means the provision that they were giving him. And Paul wrote this letter from prison. And in a Roman prison, they didn't feed you. 
You had to get fed by your friends and family or you just starve and die. He says, uh, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I've learned to be content in whatever situation I am. I know how to be brought low and I know how to have a lot. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's the secret. I can do everything I need to do for God through him who strengthens me, through Christ. All things are possible in the presence of God. When you meet God at the mercy seat and go with God every day, God can stop the waters of the river Jordan if need be for him to accomplish his purposes. God can do whatever God needs to do. And so when we see that passage in Philippians, we need to grab hold of that as a promise. Okay, I've got a little couple more to do. Let's do at least one more, maybe two. Take the Lord in the battle with you. And then the victories in your life belong to the Lord. In Joshua chapter 6, I won't put it on the, the IPVO, but I'll tell you about it. It's the Jericho battle. It's the first big battle after the Israelites have crossed the Jordan. And do you know what God has them do for the Jericho battle? Take the Ark of the Covenant around Jericho. Because you take the Lord into battle. Now, there are times where Israel should have known this lesson even before. There was a time where Israel decided to go into battle and God wasn't with them. We read about it in Numbers 15, starting in verse 39. Moses says all this to the people of Israel who mourned greatly. They just got told they were being judged. They rose early in the morning. They went up to the heights of the hill country saying, Okay, well, we'll just go fight. If God judges us because we didn't have enough courage with him, we'll go now. Here we are. We'll go up to the place the Lord has promised because we sinned and didn't think we could conquer the promised land. But Moses said, no, I told you not to do that. You blew your chance. So why are you transgressing the command of the Lord when it won't succeed? Don't go up. The Lord's not among you. You're going to lose. They've got the Amalekites and the Canaanites. They're going to kill you. Because you turned back from following the Lord. The Lord won't be with you. God's going his way. Not ours. The job is for us to turn ours to his way. The job is for us to turn ours. Look, I've, one of my daughters this morning is not here. And it's not because she's not here. She's right over there. But she's taking the LSAT. My prayer for her is that she'll get the, not the perfect score. Not the score that gets her into Harvard. Not the score that gets her into Columbia. I want her to get the score that gets her where God wants her to be. Because the goal in this life is not for me to go my way and tell God to come on because I need a bellhop or a personal assistant. The goal in this life is for me to discern where God is going and go with him. The Israelites presumed to go up to the heights of the hill country. Although neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed out of the camp. 
Moses and the presence of God stayed, they went up and fought and they got the snot beat out of them. That's Lubbock translation. And that's the way it is. Our goal in this life is to go out and fight God's battles. And then the victory belongs to the Lord. You remember John 16, 33? Jesus says, these things I've spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have flipsis, tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The victory is God's. Calvary, the cross of Christ was not defeat. It was victory. And I'll tell you this, without going into great detail, only the true God rescues. There came a time where the the Philistines grabbed the ark from Israel and they took it into their own country. And the bubonic plague broke out. Maybe it wasn't, but a lot of doctors and theologians think it's the first documented incidence of the bubonic plague. The buvos, the, the swelling that comes from the fleas that are coming with the mice. Read the story. It's all there. It's First Samuel 5. But the plague breaks out in every city, five different cities that try to hold on to this for the Philistines. And finally, they just put two oxen together and said, get it out of here. And it went to Beth Shemesh and back to the hands of the Israelites. But without this, we have no rescue. Oh, they tried to put it in their temple. The Philistines actually put this in their own temple. And it it's, um, didn't work too good. They put it in the temple of Dagon. That was the Philistine god, Dagon. And they went in the next day, and the ark was there, but Dagon's head had fallen down. And they thought, boy, weird wind propped Dagon back up, when in the next day, not only had Dagon fallen down, his head was off and his hands chopped off. There's only one God that's going to redeem. Only the true God rescues. Some other things may make you feel good for a while. But you want rescue. It's the true God. It's John 3.16, which we know God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. And then the last verse in that John 16 says that those who don't believe on them, the wrath of God remains. Because if you don't have the mercy seat, if, you don't, if you're not under the blood of Jesus, you're just under the law. And that's where the wrath of God sits, because he will destroy evil. So those are the three pieces of the puzzle. And if we understand those pieces, review these key concepts with me and lessons to learn, then we're well on the way for next week. Because next week, ooh, son, I got this. I just came in from the Jerusalem gift shop. I have pulled out the instructions. Look at this. The instruction book this little puppy up, and I thought, oh my, this is not working. There's nothing in the instruction book. And then I realized, oh wait, this is Hebrew. Let's go backwards. There we go. Yeah, 
It's the instruction book. You just got to do it, read it backwards. <laughs> so I've got to put this together. This is the whole tabernacle. Now, the real tabernacle would take the size of a half a football field, so this is not a two-thirds scale. This is really small, but we're going to talk about the whole tent process, the tabernacle, next week, if I can figure out how to put this together. So I'm excited about next week. Meanwhile, before we pray us out, if you want anything that we've been offering in any of these uh, uh, episodes or pod live cast, whatever these are, if you'll email us at info at lanierfoundation.org, uh, we'll get things out to you, and that includes N.T. Wright's book on the coronavirus. Now, hear me. I was only able to get 150 copies, so these will go to the first 150 who email us and say, hey, can I have a copy of the book? It's, it's our honor to give it to you, and, and I was talking to Tom Wright about it, uh, the author, uh, week before last, and he's really stoked. He says it's, it's, it's not a long book, he said, but it's, it's got his heart on this. I think it may be interesting. Email us and we'll give it to you. If you would like to be on our email announcement list, uh, if you've got prayer requests, a prayer request can go either place. Uh, um, if you want to be subscribed to, to, and no money, sub, but just subscribed on the list to get our emails of my daily video thoughts, then you can get us at wantmore at biblical-literacy.org. Okay, got it? Thank you guys for being present today. I appreciate it. It makes it so much easier to talk, but can I pray us out, please? Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. In the name of Jesus, who he is, what he's done by his blood, by the mercy that's manifested upon us, the forgiveness of our sins, the satisfaction of your holiness. Through Jesus, we meet you, not of our own merit, Father, crumbled under the weight of the law, but standing under the the blood of Jesus, pure and undefiled. We love you. Amen. Amen.